Molly Isis, a daughter of a long-ago pharaoh and one of the many wives of Ananijesic, the king of Jerusalem, was walking through the palace overseeing preparations for a festival to their god Baal. The kitchens were preparing the food in good order. Though originally concerned with the statues and placements of the lighting and the torches, she was pleased with their final placement and final outcome. Commenting to a few of her staff as she passed, Molly Isis was very pleased with the preparations for the evening festival. In a few hours, Adonai Jesus, the Lord of Justice, would make his appearance, and all the peoples of a distinguishment in their kingdom will be in attendance, including the six southern kings of the Amorites. She looked around and felt satisfaction that all was in order. She knew the people would arrive and sit down and begin to eat, and in thirty-minute intervals, the dignitaries would arrive via chariot from across the hills, followed by the ambassadors, followed by the viziers. And then each visiting king, each with bigger and grander chariots, until Adonai Jesus himself arrived on, his, arrived on his grand chariot in the appearance of a god himself with the sunset at his back. It will be incredible, she thought. Yes, she thought in her heart. It will be incredible. She would be proud of her husband. She sat down upon a bench at the edge of the city wall. It felt good for her to sit down. And as an Egyptian in this Canaanite city, she was an outsider no matter how hard she tried. Relegated to more of a servant wife due to her age and foreign background, she was still compliant in her duties, and the festival was one of them that she enjoyed. And when she sat down upon the bench... She allowed herself to relax and to remember home, Egypt, for it had been over 30 years since she was married away. She remembered her family, the great Nile, so famous and greater than all the rivers in this country. She missed the people and even the food. And at that moment, one of her servants rushed by. Upon her request, she declared, I heard the Israelites are crossing the Jordan. Not allowed to get up from the bench, she remained there allowing deeper memories to return. She remembered the helpless magicians in court attempting to outdo Moses, the great man himself. She remembered the Nile, once glorious, turned to blood. Next, she remembered the plagues, one after another, the frogs to the death of her firstborn brother. She cringed at the thought returning to her. Then she heard a cry and commotion from the crowd about a sign in the east. She sprang to her feet and followed the crowd and stood close to the wall around a group of people including Adonijesic himself. The huge demonized king, her husband, himself was furious pointing in the direction of the column rising to the air, demanding answers from the people around him. The crowd pointed to what they called a sign. They tried to answer the king's questions, but Maliasis couldn't hear them. She couldn't even hear the commotion of the king's shouting and his court officials trying to explain the sign. She couldn't hear them at all. Her thoughts and memories overwhelmed her senses. Her face grew pale as she looked to the east, for she knew what it was. Unconsciously, her hands reached for her family-jeweled necklace around her neck. But her hands returned empty-handed for she gave it to her family Hebrew slave 40 years ago in Egypt. She remembered how she told her Hebrew slave, who upon freedom, upon her granting her slave freedom, that she would never bow down to any other god again, only Yahweh. 
but also she remembered how she had failed so miserably in that confession. Oh, how she failed in that prayer. What shame she felt today preparing for the worship of another false god and for this false king standing next to her. Maliasis continued to stare in the direction of the bizarre Walliter column rising to the top of the atmosphere on the clear, cloudless day. The vertical spiraling column climbed straight up to the heavens, glistening in the sunlight with vibrant rainbow lines around it. Everyone marveled at it, but Maliasis knew better, remembering the day Pharaoh lost his army in the Red Sea. Her face grew paler and paler as she said to herself, Yahweh, 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 until she said it out loud unconsciously, Yahweh, Yahweh. Adonijizik, furious, stared at her and shouted at her demanding answers. Tears streaming down her face, Maliasis, unconscious of the furious king, continued staring towards the Jordan River. He's done it again. He's done it again. Yahweh has done it again. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to King Podcast. Episode 31, Crossing the Jordan. The spies have returned to Joshua, who was camped at Shittim in the plains of Moab. On the third day, from when God spoke to Joshua and from the spies went out, the armed men of Israel, 600,000 strong, marched out of camp to cross the Jordan. Here's another one of those third-day references. There are over 15 of them in the Bible. Abraham was to sacrifice his son on the third day. On the third day, Joseph released his brothers from jail. On the third day, God descended the mountain to encounter Israel at Mount Sinai. On the third day, Hezekiah was healed. On the third day, Jonah was released from the belly of the whale. On the third day, Esther approached the throne of King Xerxes to cancel a planned genocide. And the greatest of all the third day references, Acts 10.40, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. The third day represents the conclusion of the matter, new life, and resurrection power. In the words of Apostle Paul, our faith means nothing unless Jesus actually showed victory over death. Joshua's crossing of the Jordan will be on the third day and will symbolize this resurrection power and rebirth of the children of Israel and entering in the rest of Israel and early entering into the promises so long lost with Adam and promised to Abraham. Here's the account. Joshua 3:14 So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them now the Jordan was at flood stage all during harvest yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge the water from upstream stopped flowing it piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan while the water flowed down to the Sea of Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
The priest who carried the ark, the covenant of the Lord, stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. All right, there is so much here. It's really outrageous. First, let's talk about the Jordan River. At flood stage, it's a length of a football field, and it travels 10 miles per hour, which is enough to move a car. In other words, the volume of water is huge. To lift up the waters required something absolutely supernatural. By the way, what's up with God and water? Why does God do so many wonders and miracles with water? I mean, the purifying of water in the wilderness, the parting of the Red Sea, the stopping of the Jordan, Elisha's miracle with water, John's baptism in water, Jesus changing water into wine. And the message is very clear. God is triumphant even over the forces of nature, and it shows his superiority even over the laws of physics which he created. So the priests traveled into the Jordan, And when they stepped into the water, just like when Moses put his staff in the Red Sea, the river halted, and in this case, backed up to the town called Adam. And it said it piled up. It appears once the priests stepped into the river, they walked upstream upon the dry river bank less than a third of a mile away and stopped there as all of the armed men ready for battle, 600,000 strong, marched across the dry river bank. So it says the Jordan River waters piled up at the location of the town of Adam some distance from their crossing point. Downstream from this location, the riverbed was completely dry, while in the location of the town called Adam, the water piled up. To be clear, the Hebrew language says the waters literally piled up. This is about all we have to truly work with, and we have to interpret it from here. So what does it mean if the water's piled up? I mean, it is the same language used at the time of the Red Sea crossing. I like to imagine it like digging a hole in your yard. Take a shovel and dig. All of the dirt that piles up around where your hole is, that's where you toss it to. This is where it's being piled up, right? So unlike the Red Sea, which is a sea with currents, a river flows in a very linear fashion. So in this case, the waters piled up would be pretty different. When, when a flood occurs, water always flows downward and in the direction of the least resistance. For water to pile up truly defines the natural order of things and defies its physical properties. For water to pile up, you have to really use your imagination. It could have piled up in a mound or a giant mountain of water Or if you look at some Jewish traditions, there are different interpretations. One of them has has the water, the river, going vertical, creating a vertical river 22 miles high at its height. This would have been a wonder to the world and all who could see it. So I actually prefer this interpretation because, really, honestly, you could go any way. It could be a mound, it could be a hill, it could be a mountain or a vertical river. Whatever it is, it's supernatural. So for the sake of the podcast, we're leaning upon that that crazy 22-mile-high river interpretation. And this is where we got the fictional account of Mali Isis seeing the Tower of Water as far as the location of the city of Jerusalem. 
And why I favor this interpretation, probably because it's the most dramatic and incredible. No matter how it went, it was incredible. To, to put it in a context of the Jordan River turning upward in a 22-mile-high vertical heavenly river, glistening in the sunlight, roaring into the heavens, we have to put it in a current context. To put this in perspective, Mount Everest is five and a half miles high from sea level, and it can be seen in multiple countries from incredible distances. All of the local kingdoms of Canaan and the surrounding areas could have seen this column of water, and it would have led to many questions in seeking and the searching of many hearts. To any reasonable mind, it would have been enough of a sign that God was with the Israelites. All right, so the waters were halted at a town called Adam. So what's this all about? Seriously, why is there a town called Adam? Don't know of many towns named Adam. This is incredibly symbolic. God was speaking in a riddle, like he speaks so many times, speaking wisdom with every action. God was declaring the waters and the downflow and the actions and the sin of Adam and the generational inequity that flowed down from generations as a result of sin in the garden was coming to an end. The curse, well, at least parts of the curse over Adam and to his descendants would be ended with this generation. Here is the curse of Adam, Genesis 3:17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The part of this curse related to toil and fruitless labor was coming to an end. A rest was being granted to this generation and an end to this part of the curse for the generations of the faithful. Of course, there was a caveat here. Faithfulness. All right, so let's talk geography. I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and he was one of those guys who loved geography. And he was one of those people who just loved looking at maps and studying places. We started talking about how the Bible has events which occur in the same places and how they overlap or interrelate with each other despite the thousands of years time gap between them. Let me explain. Joshua crosses the Jordan here. Ehud will later do battle here and other Israelites will do the same. Elijah will go up to heaven nearby and John the Baptist will baptize Jesus nearby, and Jesus will cross these waters twice. Each of these events connect in one way or the other, which we will talk about when we get there. I will relate one of them after the next event. Next, God didn't want the Israelites to forget what he had done, and while the waters were still piling up, God told them to make two piles of twelve stones, one in the river basin, and one across the river at Gilgal. For what reason? For there to be a testimony of what God has done, so that fathers could walk their sons to this location and relate the story of what God has done, so that travelers will know what happened in this location, so that when they saw the stones, they would ask, Why are these here? What happened here? The stones at Gilgal will play a crucial part in the story of Ehud. And I have to believe the stones in the Jordan 
were eventually covered up with silt over time in the Jordan River. But could it be that John the Baptist spoke of these stones when he baptized in this location when he spoke to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 7? Again, he said, I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Isn't it fascinating? In the same location, John the Baptist spoke of stones. Could it be the same stones he was talking about? So we have to park here for a minute at the spiritual concept of the testimony. What is a testimony? According to the Webster 1828 Dictionary, it is a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact. God was doing just that. Joshua 4.4 so Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel, and to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Why is the testimony so important? See, God wants the people to be faithful and to remember his deeds. He was establishing his deed as a fact among those who see the evidence of it. Huge boulders were transported from the center of a river to the far bank. Those who witnessed the out-of-place stones will ask, who put these stones here? Why are they here? And everyone will answer, When God stopped the waters, the Israelites put these stones here. The solemn fact is that God did this and no one else. Once the Israelites cross the river and the priests with the ark step out of the river, it returns to normal at flood stage. It says all of the Canaanite hearts melted and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. There may have actually been an army awaiting them on the opposite shore, but with the display of God's power, it was impossible for there to be any military action. Next, the Israelites assembled near Gilgal, at a place called Gibeoth Haraloth. God told Joshua to make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites because they were not circumcised in the desert. Then, after this command, 600,000 men were circumcised at Gibeoth Hyarloth, which is called the Hill of Foreskins. So, last time I related this specific part of the story of the crossing of the Jordan and the, the circumcision near Gilgal, I was in a men's group with about 10 guys. And when I got to this part, they all made this sound, oh, when we spoke about the scene. But really, there there is a transition that occurs at this hill. And oh, and by the way, I mean, the hill exists today. You can find it on the internet or even go to it in Israel. I mean, it's really crazy to think the top of this hill was once covered in men's foreskin, 600,000 of them. So what's so significant about this scene, um, besides topping the disgusting scale? The reason is, Israelite will be celebrating the Passover for the first time in Canaan, and they ate from the produce of the land, and that day the manna stopped. 
They were entering the promise and the covenants of Abraham, whom God gave the covenant of circumcision. And now think about this. The flint knives, which were formed to circumcise the Israelites, were now installed upon long, strong poles and formed into spears. You know, for emphasis, the same flint knives used upon their own flesh, symbolizing their covenant with God himself, whose first blood was their old self and flesh, would now be used against their enemies. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to discuss testimonies again. What is your testimony? What have you gone through? What have you seen? It defines who you are. What has God done in your life and your family's life? What is, how has God moved in your life? It defines who you are. No one can take it from you. It defines your character and your decisions in life. Now go further. What is your parents' testimony and theirs before that? It helps to define you today. These are the stones in the river and the monuments to their faith in God. They are part of the foundation of your faith. Some of them may be buried in silt and the memories long lost to so many. But dig them up, freshen them up, for God wants you to remember who you are and where you came from. Look at it at a national level. This is why nations spend considerable resources to remember great battles and victories of the past. There are great monuments to battles and wars won to remember the testimony of the price people paid for freedom. These are monuments documenting the testimony of who we are as Americans, Canadians, Aussies, and Brits, and the list goes on. It's interesting to consider the practice of apologetics. Apologetics is a field of Christian theology which aims to present the rational basis for the Christian faith, defending the faith against objections. It has its place. We must worship God with our mind, but above all, we must worship God with our heart. But the funny thing is, I've heard something that is so true. There is no argument for a person with the testimony. If someone in the time of Joshua tried to convince an Israelite that God didn't exist, it would be futile, because the Israelite would just say, I saw the Jordan River pile up. Quit wasting my time. I ask you, what is your testimony? What are the stones in your river or parked at Gilgal? These stones are the memories of who you are and where you come from. Your testimony is part of God's story for your life. The preparations for the future and your testimony is what will impact those around you and instill faith and courage in those around you. It is no wonder the devil wants to take away or distort the great testimonies of the past. One of the greatest ways to share your faith is simply to tell your testimony. In the book of Revelation is a curious scripture. It says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. According to this scripture, every testimony shared of Jesus, working in a person or even a nation, helps to create a future event when it is shared. Let us remember and share what God has done so that others can experience His power. Thus, we never forget it.
Before we tune out of this episode, I'd like to comment on an episode a few weeks back which was titled Podcast Special. In this episode, I asked for some listener feedback, and it was great to hear from some of the listeners. Here's one of the emails. This is from Fred Badu of Connecticut. Of late, I've been stumbling here and there to make it to church or read the Bible. Your podcast has been helping me to build up my spirit again. Thank you. In commenting on Fred's email, it is a real honor to help others in their faith and to share my passion for God and His Word and His story. And thank you, Fred, and to others out there who are encouraged by the podcast and that it brings them closer to God and His story. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss Joshua's encounter and the fall of Jericho. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at message to kings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast. <laughs>